is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Open in your Bibles to 2 Peter, if you would, please. 2 Peter chapter 1. Today, our subject from Peter's letter is going to be your character. It's going to be the talking about the person that God desires us to be. And I'd like to start with this little character uh, thing I found. If, uh, just kind of a challenge on our character. If you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, If you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can overlook it when those you love take it out on you, uh, though no fault of your own, something's gone wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can ignore a friend's limited education and never correct him or her, if you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend, If you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you have almost reached the same level of character development as your dog. (laughs) And Chuck, I see you're here. That's no disrespect to any dog, right? It's simply to say, I think God desires that and more of us, okay? Not too long ago, I shared with you that God wants us to make disciples Because men and women who follow Jesus, they change. When when a man or woman begins to follow Jesus, something happens in their life and they become different. And as they become different, they change their family. And as they change their family, then their family changes their community. And as their community changes, then then ultimately the the greater community or even the world is is changed. So Jesus calls us salt and light. And so the reason we're making disciples is so that people around us will also be salt and light and they will impact the world around us around them. Last week, as we started 2 Peter, this second letter from Peter to, uh, to the exiles throughout Asia Minor, he began by telling them that uh, the faith that they had received or the, uh, the truth that they had received came from people who personally knew Jesus and had walked with Jesus. And yet that was such a great privilege, but nonetheless, Nonetheless, our faith is no different than theirs, he said, they said, or Peter said. And he said that, you know, as we begin to follow Jesus, then our our character, our grace and, and our peace will increase because God has given us everything we need to be different. And he's given us his great and precious promises. And so we want to pick up in verse five, which is where we left off. And as we start in verse five, he begins by saying, for this very reason, for what reason? For the reason that I just shared with you from verses 1 through 4, because God has given us everything we need to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, because God has given us everything we need to develop the character of Jesus in our lives, he says, for this very reason, and here's what he's going to go on to do. He's going to go on to give us a list of the the kind of character qualities that you and I need to have in our life. He's going to go on to tell us the kind of person that you and I need to be. 
Okay, that's, that's what Peter's going to do in these next verses. He's going to describe for us via a list the kind of person that you and I should be. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not the only list in the Bible. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13, we have another list, right? We have a list of what it means to love. That's the kind of character that you and I are to have. We could go through there and look at how we're to be patient and kind and be humble. There's another list in, uh, in the book of Galatians in chapter 5. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's another list of character traits that you and I are to have. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, self-control, gentleness, and self-control. So this is not an exhaustive list that Peter's given us, but it's the list that's, that by the Spirit he's giving to us. And it's the list that we're going to look at uh, this morning. We are disciples of Jesus. We follow Jesus. Our, our goal is to be like Jesus. Well, what does that look like? What am I supposed to be in my life? What is my life supposed to look like as one who follows Jesus? Well, here it is. Let's read verses 5. You follow along in your Bibles. 5 to 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if you have these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Now, as Peter begins this list, I want you to notice those first few words. After he says, for this reason, pointing back to one through four, he says, make every effort. Your, your translations, are, they say it different, but, but basically he's saying, hey, you should really put your heart into this. This is super important. And so this is super important for us today. You should make every effort to become the person that we're going to talk about this morning. And as he begins, he starts off with faith. Faith is the foundational character of one who follows Jesus. You see that? He says, uh, supplement your faith. He's presupposing that you and I are men and women of faith, because this is where it begins. This is kind of neat in our morning prayer time, Dickie. You recognize that, that it starts with faith. And we'll talk about what it ends with in just a few moments. But, but it starts with faith. This is where it begins for us. And, and as, as, as Peter tells us, supplement our faith, he's assuming we have it. So let's talk about what is faith in our life for just a second. What is faith? And I've written down three things. Again, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list either. I imagine you could add to it. But here, here's what faith is. Three things from the scriptures. Number one, faith is believing that there actually is a God out there who is worthy of our worship. That's what faith, that's where faith maybe even begins. That there's a God out there to whom we owe our very existence in our very, very lives. Hebrews eleven six says, We cannot please God without faith. And then he goes on to define it. And he says, For faith is this, that we believe that God exists. Kind of simple, right? But that's where faith begins. It begins with believing that God actually exists. Here's the second thing that faith is. It's believing that it's believing God when he's revealed something to us. So faith is believing that God exists, but then it's also believing what he has revealed. It's believing what God has revealed to us through creation. Do you know what God has revealed to you through creation? 
It tells us in Romans chapter 1, it says that there's an all-powerful God out there to whom we owe everything. Revelation 1 says that. So creation has revealed that to us. So, so faith is believing what God has revealed through creation. Romans chapter, it's either chapter 2 or chapter 3. I didn't look it up. But, but one of those two chapters, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has revealed things to our conscience. That, that there are things that we innately know from God by creating us. And I think they would be that God, that God exists would be one of those, right? But, and that God is all-powerful. That's revealed in creation. But, but I think it would be more than that. I think God has revealed in our consciences, for instance, that we must give an account to God one day. I think every man... And woman knows that. And that's why worship is found in every group of people throughout the world, right? Because there's something in their consciences know that they know that they have to answer to God. But more specifically, it's believing what God has revealed to us through special revelation. And, and so God has revealed to us, and we'll talk more about this uh, next Sunday, I believe, but he's revealed to us Things through the prophets in the Old Testament and through the apostles in the, in the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he revealed this special revelation most completely in the person of Jesus. Of course, we have what we know about Jesus recorded for us in the special revelation of Scripture. But Jesus is the, the perfect representation of what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And so faith believes what God has revealed. And then the third thing is, and this is maybe just as important as the other two, but faith is seeking to know and to love God. So the first two things, if you would, it's about, it's about believing that God exists and then believing what God has revealed to you about himself. But this third part, is, it's about seeking to know and to love God. So Hebrews eleven six. let me go back to the second part of that verse. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he uh, is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so part of faith is seeking after God. If someone says, I believe that God exists, but doesn't seek him, they do not have the kind of faith that Peter is talking about here. Now, I've took some liberty, and I've inserted a reason why we seek God. Hebrews eleven six doesn't tell us why we seek God. I added the words love and know and love God. Faith is seeking to know and love God. Hebrews eleven six just simply says faith is seeking God, right? But I'm saying to know and to love God, and I think I, think I have the spirit if I can say this. I think I have the spirit and I have the word of God to, to back up what I'm saying. So Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God, comes and he says, hey guys, here's the greatest commandment of all. You know what it is, right? It's what? To love God with all of your being, right? So it seems reasonable to me that when God says that faith is seeking after him, it's seeking to love him. And then if I take Paul's words, when Paul's writing to the Philippian church, he says, this is my greatest desire to know God, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. So I'm going to put those two things together and say, when God says faith is seeking after God, it's seeking to know who God is in his fullness. And it's seeking to love this God that we're, that we're pursuing. So as we begin this, this afternoon or this morning, excuse me, if we begin this morning with this, with this talk from Peter, let me, let me start by asking you this. I'm going to assume that you're here and so you believe that God exists. 
But I, I want to just ask you just to kind of do a moment of self-reflection and say, well, but do you believe the revelations of God? Do you believe what God has revealed about himself in Christ and in the scriptures? Do you believe that? And more importantly, I say more importantly, maybe it's not more, it's of equal importance though. Are you someone who is seeking after God? Do you really seek God or are you just kind of drifting and floating? You know, or are you actually pursuing and seeking after God? I really, my challenge today, I, I think the things that I'm going to be saying to you, they involve us seeking after God so that God might create in us or help us become the person that he wants us to be as he was revealed here. So number one is faith. Here's number two. Disciples of Jesus give their best. Here's, here's his second character thing that you and I need to pursue. Disciples of Jesus give their best. Now, my parents and my mom was going to watch this, so I don't know if it was mom or dad or if it's just my heritage taught me this. But anything worth doing is worth doing right well, right? Your mama and your daddy taught you that and their grandparents taught them that. Well, listen, folks, that is what Peter's saying. Look at the text. He says, supplement your faith with goodness. It may surprise you, but that word translated goodness, there isn't a spiritual word. It doesn't even have a, a spiritual adjective attached to it. Now, in a lot of your translations, it's going to say moral virtue, or it's going to say it's going to say something that's going to tag it with a spiritual adjective, but that's not in what Peter wrote. That's interpreters trying to help us understand what, what Peter meant. The word goodness used here is a pretty rare word. It's only used by, by Peter in this letter and one other time by Paul in one of his letters. But in the common Greek language, non-Christian language, this is a pretty common word. And here's what the word meant. It meant excellence. It meant excellence. It meant doing things with energy and, and that kind of, you know, that, that little extra oomph that we can put into everything? That's really what the word meant. Martin Vincent says the word, and I quote, the original classical sense of the word has no special moral import, but denotes excellence of any kind. Now, here's what I think this means. That in our character, we need to be men and women who want to do things to the best of our ability who want to do things not uh, halfway, uh, but, but we, we really go all out. So obviously that would imply to our morality, which is what the translators have done. And they've said, well, we need to have excellent morality. And so they've kind of, I think, sort of narrowed the focus of the world, word to that one aspect of our lives. But, but I think Peter may have had something bigger in mind. I think he might be saying, to your faith, add excellence in everything that you do. Yes, begin with your morality. Your morality and my morality should be excellent. It always, it isn't always, but it should be. But if we were to expand this, I would say, Peter would be saying, in your ministry, be excellent. If I could take a moment to talk about Shannon here, I want, I want to give kudos to Shannon Midkiff and the ladies uh, in the ladies conference yesterday because Shannon did everything with excellence. Not that Karen and Ann didn't, but Shannon just, I mean, they tore the worship center apart which I was like, really? But they, they took the chairs down to set up tables. And, and, and Shannon just did everything. And the other two ladies did too. Oh, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> but, I, but I'm in the inner workings, and I know where a lot of that, that desire for excellence came from. 
But, but we should all want that. There's a balance. Okay, there's, there's a balance. But we should want to do our ministries excellently. We should want to do our marriages excellently. We should want to do our management excellency, excellently, whatever we manage. We should want to do our, our methods. They should be excellent. Someone has said about excellence, excellence is to do a common thing in an uncommon way. Now, in my role as a pastor, can I just tell you, please, I mean, I'm not trying to shame us. I'm just trying to be honest. But what I've noticed in, in, with regards in the spiritual realm, ministry-wise, so often we're not doing things excellent. We're doing just enough to get by. And I've thought about this. Maybe the reason is because you're volunteers, and I'm, volu- I'm, vol- I'm not volunteer. Y'all are supporting me financially. But so often when we're volunteers, we're, we're thinking, well, you know, I mean, I'm just a volunteer here right? I'm just giving my time. Nobody's compensating me for this. And I think the tendency can be for us to not necessarily do our very best. And, and, and it's not just in ministry. It can be in any areas of our life. Whatever you do, I think Peter's saying, be a person of excellence. Paul Harvey told a story. I thought it was kind of humorous, but a woman calls the Butterball Turkey Company on the consumer hotline, and she asked about the advisability of eating a turkey that had been in the freezer for 25 years. And uh, the guy said, well, he said, you know, as long as the freezer has been below zero, that turkey will be okay to eat. He said, but after 25 years, he said, the taste will probably have deteriorated. And the caller said, well, that's what we thought. So we're going to donate it to the church. <laughs> so next week is our Thanksgiving dinner. And I've already talked to the Walmart people. So Sharon, our Sharon is buying new turkeys. All right. So uh, they won't be 25 year olds. But, but, but I'm telling you, folks, we can have a tendency to want to donate the, the maybe not the least, but not the best. Not the excellent, right? But I think Peter's calling us to excellence here. Um, I want to encourage you to reconsider if you're someone who just does just a little bit, be absolutely excellent. Number three, Jesus' people should always be learners. Supplement your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge. And again here, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to diminish anything But the word knowledge here isn't necessarily spiritual knowledge. There's no spiritual adjective saying that Peter's talking about your Bible knowledge. He says just simply knowledge. And so my challenge, I think that Peter might be going beyond just the spiritual realm and saying, you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to be learners, lifelong learners, always learning in every single aspect of our life. We should want to be growing in knowledge. Yes, does that begin with our knowledge of the Word of God? Absolutely. We should be growing in spiritual truth. We should want to be learners. Can, can I, and again, I'm not trying to shame us, but all too often, listen, we just want to sit there and be spoon-fed by whoever our teacher is, whether it's Liz yesterday, me today, or somebody tomorrow. We just want to be spoon-fed. And listen, I am not diminishing what I'm doing here. I'm not diminishing what Liz did yesterday, but I am saying to you, you, you and I need to be 
learners in the spiritual realms ourselves, in the spiritual realm, we need to say, I want to, I want to dig. I want to not just be spoon-fed what to believe or even what to do. I want to grow in this. So it does apply in, in the spiritual realm, maybe first of all. But I really want to challenge you all to be learners in every aspect of life, to be a forever learner. Now, I realize that we can't all be geniuses in every area. I'm not, I don't think that's what Peter has in mind. But I do think he's saying just love truth and want to be growing in that in whatever realm you find yourself in, or especially in the spiritual realm. Have you ever heard the saying, he's a jack of all trades, but a master of none? You know, I've, I've used that thing so many times to, to excuse my, you know, not so good work. But, you know, that is, I've recently discovered, you may have recently discovered because it's been all on social media, but that's not the original quote. Here's the original quote if you didn't know it. Here's how the quote went. A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. So really, the quote says something very different than the way we've turned the quote. We've learned we've turned the quote in to be a slam on someone, you know, when they mess up. Oh, he's a jack of all trades, but he sure didn't know this one very well. That's kind of how we mean that, right? But the original way that the quote was used was that sometimes somebody who knows an awful lot about a bunch of trades is going to be a whole lot more helpful than somebody who just knows one thing. And, and if you would, I think this is maybe what Peter is challenging you and me to be to be learners in just every area of our life. So I really want to challenge you in that way. Number four, we should always be growing in self-control. To your knowledge, supplement it with self-control. Now, as people, we have different parts to who we are as a person. We have an immaterial part. We have a material part. The immaterial part has several divisions. We have our emotions. We have our desires. We have our will. We have our reason. Those are all part of the immaterial me. Hear what Peter is saying to us. He's saying that this immaterial part of our will needs to have control over our emotions and over our desires. And by the way, by the way, uh, self-control is what Paul also says is one of the fruits of walking in connection with God's Holy Spirit. So we have com competing desires. I have a desire to be healthy, to have a balanced weight. But I had a desire yesterday to eat uh, Shannon's whole pan of leftover um, French toast stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you, the stuff melted in your mouth. And I have a confession to make, Shannon. I stole a piece and took it home so I could have it this morning. So, uh, but you know, we just self-justify ourselves, right? I deserved it, I said. So I grabbed a little piece and stuck it in, in the pan that we were taking home. So I have a desire to be healthy and I have a desire to be thin, but I have a competing desire to eat that stuff, you know? Self-control is when I choose between two competing desires in my life I choose the one that is the better one. Or I choose the one in a spiritual sense. I'm choosing the one that is what God would want me to choose, even if it's not what I particularly want to choose. And so that's why Peter says to be diligent to add self-control to your life. In the book of Proverbs, here's what God says about, about self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, a person without self-control is like a city 
with broken down walls. Do you know what a city with broken down walls was in the Old Testament? It was an indefense. It was, they could not defend it. I don't know how to say that. Indefensible. It was indefensible. If the walls were down, the enemies could just come right in it. If you don't have self-control, I'm telling you, uh, the enemies of your soul and your life are just going to run roughshod all over you. You have to have self-control over your wrong and unhelpful desires. But that's not easy. I'm not saying this morning that that having self-control is easy. It's not. It's really, really hard. So two things to help us. First, recognize that though you have a will, it's been corrupted by your sinful nature and, and your will is not perfect and your will is not always strong enough. And this is why you need God's help. And so ask God, the Spirit. That's why God gave us His Spirit, I believe, to help us with our wills, to strengthen our wills. And the second thing I'd say about how do you, how do you grow this self-control is by practice. The key to growing self-control is living self-control. If, if, if I practice self-control today, it's easier to have self-control tomorrow. But if I give in today to the desires that aren't right, then what happens, it's, just, it's so much easier to give in tomorrow and, and the next day. And let me just say, let's say you're on a downward trajectory of just giving in to your will in a wrong way. Here's what I would challenge you. Just turn it around and, and have self-control this one day and then add self-control the next day and the next day. And the more we practice, the stronger our will will become. I think, and this is just to me thinking out loud, but I, I think that fasting may have been about trying to condition our wills. You know, how, you know like we're... we're, we're Told or encouraged to fast without food. Maybe that's all about practicing self-control over the desires, you know, the desire to, to eat. Maybe that's what that's about. Here's five areas where you're going to have strong desires, and God says you have to have self-control. Anger. Anger. Here's a verse. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. A fool is without self-control when it comes to anger, but a wise person has self-control over anger. Here's another one, drinking. Who has woe? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. That's Proverbs 23. You know, when I was young, you know, by and large, Christians viewed drinking as, you know, definitely not something you did. In this day and age, that's changed. You know, alcohol has become a regular part of Christian's life. I'm not going to speak to whether that should or shouldn't be, but I do want you to know that if you are going to drink, self-control has to be a part of your life or you will sin against the Lord. And no telling, maybe something worse might, might come upon you, like alcoholism and an inability to even control it at all. Lust. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Ambition. Don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. Proverbs 23. That one was Proverbs 6, by the way. Spending. Precious treasure and oil are in the dwelling of a wise person, but a fool consumes them. Proverbs 21. Here's my point. My point is there's lots of areas in your life that you need self-control. And then if you don't have it, anger, drunkenness, lust, unbridled ambition, materialism, they just take over your life. Number five, cultivate staying power. 
Supplement self-control with endurance. The word is hupomene, which literally means to wait under. And it, it often speaks of waiting under some pressure and not letting go and not giving in. Uh, it's sticking something out that's really difficult. I found this story, I think it's kind of humorous, and maybe it sort of illustrates this, but on a consumer flight from Portland, Maine to Boston in the summer of 1987, a pilot heard a weird noise in the back. Henry Dempsey turned the controls over to his co-pilot, went back to check it. He reached the tail section of the plane. It hit an air pocket, and Dempsey was tossed against the rear door, and then he quickly discovered the source of the noise. The door wasn't latched. And so the door came open, and Dempsey was instantly sucked out of the jet. The co-pilot, seeing the red light on the control uh, panel, indicating an open door, radioed a nearest airport requesting permission to emergency land, told about Dempsey falling out of the plane, requested a helicopter to go look for him. After the plane had landed, the ground crew found Henry Dempsey hanging on to the ladder of that door, of that aircraft. After he'd been caught out, he somehow grabbed the ladder and for 10 minutes held on at 200 miles an hour hour at 4,000 feet. What is more, as the plane made its approach, Dempsey had to keep his head from hitting the runway, a mere 12 inches from the ground. According to the news report that when they got to him, it took more than a minute or so to unlatch his fingers from the ladder. Mr. Dempsey showed incredible endurance. <laughs> I just want to tell you that story. It's kind of a neat story. Endurance is the power to keep on going when it hurts and it's difficult and you want to, you know, I imagine Mr. Dempsey didn't want to give in, but I imagine the pain of that experience probably made him want to give in, give up. Here are the, here are the popular colloquialisms that go along with this. Keep on keeping on, hang in there, put up with it, strive, uh, strive, keep striving, don't quit. Now, endurance in this time when Peter's writing, what do you think he was talking about? Not a rhetorical question. Persecution? Am I hearing persecution? That's the right answer. He was talking about persecution. He's, he's saying to, to your character, add persecution in the middle of, of the... Uh, excuse me, add, add endurance in the middle of your persecution. And so I thought about that. What does that mean? What does he mean when he says endure in the middle of your persecution? Here's what I think he means. He means when you're being persecuted and, and it's just really hard and you're suffering and you're watching your husband set on fire as a lady in the story or your whole face is disfigured because of what they did to you. Keep on loving Jesus in the middle of that. Keep on trusting that Jesus is with you. Keep on obeying Jesus. Keep on following Jesus when you're in the middle of that suffering. That's what he means by endurance. You know, we, we don't have, we're, we're praying for the persecuted church. We're not the persecuted church. But, but here's, here, hey, I think it means this. Endure with Jesus even when Jesus doesn't do what you want him to do. Even when, when what Jesus allows or Jesus causes in your life? Because listen, Jesus can, you know, this is a big divide in the church, but I believe Jesus can cause things in our life and I believe he can allow things in our life. And sometimes he allows things that are super painful. And what I've got to do in the middle of that pain is keep on enduring, keep on loving him, keep on trusting him, keep, keep on just knowing that he's with me and loves me. He's not forsaking me. And then he is who he says he is. Add endurance. Have a character of endurance in your Christian life. So many of us, how is it that we have it so easy and we're so easily falling away? 
We're so easily caving in and, you know. Number six, grow in godliness. Supplement endurance with godliness. The word is rare in the Bible. It's a compound word. It means worship well. It's kind of like we say he's a religious man. That's how the pagans use this word in Peter's day. But literally means worship well. And so I think Peter is saying, hey, to to your uh, endurance, add proper worship of God. And if I had to say what that means to you and me today, this is what I think it would be. It would mean have this, have this growing awareness of God's presence in your life. Even as I asked you to have this growing awareness of the persecuted church in your life, have this growing awareness of God being in your life. Make him the center of your life. Keep him there. You know, um, if I ask you to name someone who is this really serious follower of Jesus, who, who, if I said, think of the person who follows Jesus the best, who loves Jesus the most in your life. Think of who that is. And you think about who that is for just a moment. Now, let me ask you this. Why did you say that? Why did you say, why, why do you think, why did you think that person is the person who has this, this kind of relationship with God that I want? Well, whatever that is that they have, that's what it means to be godly. You emulate that. Whatever it is about them that you see that says, man, they're just connected to God, then you emulate that because that's what he's saying. Be a good worshiper of God. Be worship well. Number seven, deepen your love for God's people. Godliness with a brotherly affection. Supplement your godliness, your right worship with brotherly affection. There's one thing in the Bible it talks about over and over and over again for us. It is that we need to love each other. By this, they're going to know that you love God because you love one another. How can we say we love God whom we haven't seen when we cannot love our brother who we have seen? Wherever I am today, I need to be growing this. I need to love God's people more and more. I, I, I think I'm going to say this as God's people. The, when he says love of God, when he says brotherly affection, he's talking about our love for each other. So, and this is why small group, this is why small group connection is so important, everyone. This is why having a, a band of believers that, that you do life with more than others is so important because they get to know you and they get, they, they're there to love you when you're hurting. And so that's why small groups are so, so important. And I would encourage you to find one or start one, but be in a small group of other believers who, that, that you're doing some life together. And then number eight, because brotherly affection is not enough. The last thing is there, advance in agape. He says, to your brotherly affection, add agape. Now, I've, I've defined the word love there for its Greek, with its Greek uh, original, agape. Most of us have heard this, but the Greek word agape, um, it's, it's a different word than the word that he just used for brotherly love or brotherly affection. It's what we call God's kind of love. It's a sacrificial love for one another. It's an unconditional love for others. It's an undeserved love. And, and I think, I think that Peter is saying to you and me this, hey guys, don't just love each other, but have God's kind of love for everyone out there. Have that kind of love for everyone that, that you're willing to look beyond just your brothers and sisters in the church. And you're willing to, you know, love those people out there. And in 1 Corinthians 13 defines it for us. It says, believing the best in them, forgiving them, encouraging them. Um, I think it's where we get to think about loving your enemies. And how do we love our enemies? Because we have agape, because we have this unconditional love that's just beyond us. It's the kind of love that God puts in our heart for other people. 
Now, I've told this story many times. I'm going to tell it again this morning because it's just such a great illustration of what I'm talking about. But um, Cory Ten Boone, if you don't know who she was, she was a um, Polish, I believe. I believe she was Polish. I think. But anyway, she was not a Jew, but uh, she, her parents were, they loved the Lord and uh, they were serious Christians and they hid Jews during the, uh, during the Holocaust. And of course they were eventually found out and sent to concentration camps and Corey and her sister went to one. Her parents were killed. Her sister died at uh, Ravensbrook where she was and she alone survived from her family. And, uh, and after, after the Holocaust, she began to speak she began to speak about, about Jesus and about her, experiencing, her experience and all of that. And I don't know, remember where she was, but she was in Europe somewhere speaking. And she finished her talk. And like always, she would stand at the front and greet people. And uh, she said that that's when she saw him. In the line was one of the guards that had, one of the German guards who had been at Ravensbrück. And he was making his way to the front and, and, of course, she was frozen on the inside. She'd just been talking about forgiveness. And I want to just read. I, I tried to just take a few excerpts from what she said. But this is what she said. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard in there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, will you forgive me? Now, I, for, I for neglected to say that she recognized him, but he didn't recognize her. And she talked about how he was so cruel. And she even, I think, attributed part of her sister's death to this man's cruelty. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. My forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Be diligent to add love to your brotherly affection. And this is what Dickie said this morning. He said, how fitting that it begins with faith and ends with agape. Isn't that true? How fitting that our lives should be like Jesus, filled with faith at the beginning and then ending loving like Jesus in everything we do and how we are. Let me, let me, draw, let me bring this to an end. Peter says that as we develop these character qualities in our life, two things will be true of us. Two things will, two, these qualities will substantiate two things in our life. Number one, we will be fruitful. If, uh, if not, we're going to be blind and unfruitful if we don't have these qualities. Verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus that you possess. The person who lacks these things is blind, short-sighted, has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. These, actually, these verses actually couch that in the negative. I'm couching it in the positive. If we, if we are growing in character like this, you're going to be fruitful. And here's what that means. You're going to have, you're going to have 
things that you're going to do in your life that, that are going to be evidence, they're going to be the fruit. Now, the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit our character. So yes, you will have that demonstrated. But I think Peter means here, you're going to be fruitful in the activities of your life. You're going to do things with your life that are going to impact others around you. People are going to see and experience from your hand when, when you have these growing character qualities in your life. The second thing he says is you'll confirm your salvation. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you have this growing character, you're not going to stumble. And if you don't stumble, for in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. We are not saved by developing these character qualities. But Peter says, when I am saved and I am, I am loving Jesus and, and he, he has redeemed my character and redeemed me, then these qualities are going to be mine. And it's going to be clear that I belong to Jesus because these things are growing in my life. If you lack them, you, you should be concerned. You, you should be concerned. Listen, listen, beloved, we cannot depend on some prayer we prayed that somehow I have a relationship with Jesus because I prayed a prayer sometime in the past. This, this, is not, this is what Peter says in the Word of God. It's not based on my praying a prayer. It's based on the fact that I am growing in these things and they are developing in my life. And if they're not, he, he says, or excuse me, he's, he's couching this in the negative, or he's couching this in the positive, excuse me. He says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. You will confirm your relationship with Jesus by having these things, and you won't stumble if you're growing in these things. If you lack them, let me just say, you may not belong to him. Unless I be less than clear, God saves us apart from these things. But when he has saved us, these things will become true in our life. Let me end with this. And this is, this is my conclusion. And this is, I want to end with Jesus' words, parable he taught us in Luke. You'll know the parable well. Just listen. He told this parable, Jesus did. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came and looked for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, he said, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I waste, why should it waste even the soil? But the gardener replied to him, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you cut it down. Now I think this parable is first, its first application was to Israel. That's a different message. But I really do believe that the application of this parable can be for you and me too. And here's my, here's my closing remark. Do not be that fig tree. Don't be that fig tree. That year after year, Jesus comes looking for fruit in your life because you claim to belong to him, and he doesn't find any. Don't be that fig tree. If you're not growing and producing fruit, then stop, back up, get help. I mean, go to the Lord, say, Lord, what's wrong with me? Why is my faith unproductive? Why is my faith not bringing forth fruit? Why is my faith not changing my life? Don't be unproductive in your life. So let's go back. Would you bow your heads, please? I ask you to bow your head simply so that you can focus and, you know, focus a little bit better. But the first thing was faith. 
So let me ask you, are you growing in faith? I mean, listen, you don't have any reason to lie to yourself. So don't lie to yourself. Be honest. Are you growing in faith? Are you seeking after God, wanting to love him more and wanting to know him better? How about goodness and excellence? Are you growing in in this desire to be excellent in your life and what you do? And, And again, so, I mean, if you're uncomfortable with me making that too broad, are you seeking excellence in your spiritual life with God? Are you, seek, are, you ex, are you trying to be excellent there? If you don't want to broaden it, just there. Are you seeking to be excellent in your spiritual life? The third one is knowledge. Again, if I've broadened it too much and you're uncomfortable with that, with me saying that God wants you to be a learner in every area of life that you can be, then just make it, hey, are you seeking to be a learner in the realm of the spirit? Are you seeking to be a learner when it comes to truth? I mean, what does that look like? I mean, if you're saying, yeah, so again, this is just all in your heart, you and God, I'm just asking you some pushback questions. Then how is that showing itself in your life? If you're answering yes to that, I'm a a truth seeker. I want to be learned. I want to be a learner. How, how How do you see that in your life? Can you answer that question? How about self-control? When you have two competing desires, and one of them you know is not what the Lord desires, are you exercising self-control? How about endurance? Are you easily knocked off track in your spiritual life? Are you one of these who endures? That stays under, hupomone, who stays under this pressure, whatever it is, loving God. I mean, listen, if you can get out from underneath pressure, I don't, I don't necessarily think you have to stay there. But are you easily knocked off your walk with God because of, of some, something external, as opposed to staying the course with the Lord? couple more hanging there. Godliness. Worship well. Do you wor- are, you, are you a worshiper? The presence of God, is he in your life every day? Are you thinking thoughts with him, talking with him, walking with him every day? You know, I think I walk with God every day, but you know, my, you know, some of my outward stuff's different than Anne's stuff. Sometimes I think it should look more like what Anne's doing, but but I think it's just between you and God, your walk with God. Are you walking with God? Is your, are you walking daily in His presence? How about brotherly affection? Let's start at home. And brotherly affection at home? How about in our church family? Is, is there brotherly affection here? Are you going out of your way to love your brothers and sisters, to get to know them? You can't love people that you don't know. So what are you doing to expand your getting to know brothers and sisters in the family? And connected to a small group. I honestly think those things are connected. I'm not just trying to manipulate you. I honestly believe that brotherly affection is borne out in, in smaller groups of believers walking in life together. 
And our church isn't overly big, but, uh, it, you know, it's just too big to walk with every single person in this room, every single person in our family. So who are you walking with in your brotherly affection? And finally, agape. You love your enemies. Do you love the difficult people? Do you love the people that are on the other side from you politically? Do you love the people who uh, maybe are spurning your relationship with God? Do you love them? God, as we leave this room in just a couple of minutes, I pray that, you know, our, our hearts would be um, inclined to be the people that you want us to be. Jesus, I tell you, I speak for all of us, so we want to be like you. We really do. We recognize that being your disciple means that we observe all that you've commanded us to observe, that we are like you. We thank you for giving us your spirit who is working out his life in us. And, and so, you know, we can be like you. Would you help us? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have sat under this, this talk and, uh, and Peter's words this morning. I pray if there's conviction that they would, um, that I would, we would, we would walk out of here committed to actually grow and, um, and be increasing in these character qualities. We ask this in Jesus' name and with his help. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.